Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, church family. Uh, If you are a kid and you are up to fifth grade, we have children's church today. So race to the door, try to beat Pastor Mark there. He's doing double duty this morning. But for the rest of us, if you could, for the last time, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. That did not, that sounded a little grumpier than I meant it to. For the last time, well, you know, I, we're wrapping up today. That's all I meant by that. Ephesians chapter 6, we finally reached the end. So what we're going to do, which has been our practice as we've been going through this together, is I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will reply, thanks be to God. So Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Here we go. Finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. And also for me. That the words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Let's talk to that God right now. Father, I pray that as we read your word, as we study it together, your spirit would show up. God, help me to get out of the way and that your word would be proclaimed clearly. God, we've reached the end, and I pray that you would help us to take this message out into our lives so that we would finish well. God, these words can transform people. Your word can encourage the brokenhearted, can humble the proud, 
can give endurance to the tired. So God, I pray that you would do all these things and more this morning as your spirit shows up, as your son is preached. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in his recent book, The Messy Middle, entrepreneur Scott Belsky describes kind of this oddity about a business in American culture. Uh, In American culture, what we tend to do is we tend to celebrate the extremes. We celebrate the start of a company. So when a startup launches, we celebrate it, we cut ribbons, we have parties, there's champagne. And then the end of things, when you retire, when you finally hang up that coat, when we, we put your jersey on the wall, we finish everything. We celebrate the beginning and we celebrate the middle. What's ignored is everything in between. And what happens in between is really what determines the end. Uh, He calls it the messy middle. If we don't help navigate the messy middle, there's not going to be a graceful ending. And, And that's just exactly how life is too. Most of life happens in the middle, in that hyphen between your birth year and your death year. And, and, I don't mean to be Captain Obvious here, but life is hard. You don't have to be alive longer than 20 minutes to know that life is hard. It's actually one of our first experiences. We were comfortable in a womb. We didn't have to do anything. Food was brought to us. Temperature controlled, it was great, it wasn't too loud, it was just right, and then we're yanked out of that situation into a cold room where somebody slaps you just so you cry. (laughs) Life is hard. People get a cancer diagnosis. People live with chronic pain. You can lose your job. You can lose relationships. Your career might be a disappointment when you look at your friends. It's hard to watch loved ones ruin their lives, only to somehow survive and then turn around and run right back into chaos. It's hard to watch loved ones die. Life is hard, and then you die. We've we've set up a false narrative here in church. Actually, one of the things that's really hard about suffering is we've not prepared people well to suffer. We've not prepared you for the struggle that is the messy middle. In really good intentions, we've tried to set out and be encouraging and be uplifting. And what we've done accidentally, one of the unintended consequences of always being positive, is that when you suffer, when life gets hard, when it falls apart and you don't know what to do, and you come to church, you feel like you don't belong. Everybody's happy here. Everybody has a quick answer for your problems. What do you do when you're struggling? How do you navigate that messy middle? Especially if you can't come to Jesus and his people are not helpful. If you're you're told, hey, that's not normal. There's something wrong with you. You're suffering. Yeah, we'll hear it, but we'll really quickly offer an answer. And then we're going to swipe that suffering to the side. See, what happens when, that hap- when, when you do suffer, when the messy middle just hits you, you do one of two things if that's been your experience with church. You either pretend you're not suffering, you pretend it's not hard, that it's all super easy, and you just fit in with everybody else, and you just die quietly inside, or you leave. 
You say, this doesn't have an answer. I'm going somewhere that does. And that's why this passage that we just read is so life-giving. This passage is life-giving because it's, it's a plan. It's a roadmap to navigate through that messy middle, and it was written from a jail cell. See, the gospel, the gospel is not trust Jesus and everything is great. The hope of the Christian life is not that you will have a carefree rainbows and butterflies type of existence and then you die and you sit on a cloud and you play an instrument that no one's played for hundreds of years and you sit around with these flying babies. That's not the hope of the Christian message. And that's where Paul wants to send us out. These are his parting words that he's giving us and then sending the church in Ephesus out. These are his before I sign off thoughts. And he wants to help us navigate the messy middle not with good life hacks. He's not saying if you just do these three things, you'll finish well. Here's some good advice to help get you to the end. Or actually, no, it's totally easy. What he's doing is this. He's saying, look, there's a long journey home. It's not easy. But you haven't just been given a cosmic life coach. The gospel is not just about how you can have good behavior and your life will go better. Gospel is not good advice. It's not good life hacks. It's about a person. The hope of the Christian message is that we get a person. And this person will walk with us through the messy middle till we get home. And that's Paul's message this morning. He prepares us for the messy middle he sends us out into the messy middle, and he gives us tools to survive. So the first thing he does, that first way we're going to look at this morning, he says, hey, you need to prepare for the long way home. The journey home is long, and we get to prepare. How do we prepare for the long way home? We look back. We look back at what already has happened. Everybody makes sense of their life via a story, and so we're going to look back at that story. When everything looks like it's flying out of control, we're going to look back and see that it's really not. This is nothing new. So we prepare for this journey home, for this messy middle, and then he sends us out into it. And it, it's kind of weird language. Like he, tar- he starts talking about like the, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and it's like, what's, what in the world is Paul talking about? Well, we start to unpack that, and he's, not, he's talking about sin and how we go to battle with sin. And you're like, oh man, this is going to be super discouraging, like, I don't, but it's actually super awesome, okay? So just hang in there. It's not as cheesy as it sounds, okay, but Paul didn't write this knowing, I mean, he didn't write about the, the sword of the spirit and all these things, knowing like, hey, someday there's going to be this cottage industry of Christian bookstores, and I'm going to be able to sell a bunch of gospel merch. We'll sell helmets, we'll sell shields, it'll be super cool, kids will love it. Okay, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you're so blessed, okay, you just are so <laughs> blessed. That's not the point of this spiritual warfare we're talking about. He's actually calling us to pursue justice and grace, and it's beautiful. And then after we get through the messy middle, he talks about how we can still cultivate God's presence, that we navigate the middle with a person, and he's there with us, and we cultivate that presence through a discipline called prayer. It's not just a checklist of things we have to do. It's how we cultivate the messy middle. It's how we cultivate, or survive the messy middle, rather, by cultivating the presence of God. So let's first look at how he prepares us for this messy middle. 
Are we ready to go on this journey? This is what he says to us in verses 10 and 11. He says, finally. What he's saying is this, look, I'm, I'm parents. I'm headed on vacation. We're leaving the kids home alone. And as I'm headed out the door, here's the last thing you need to know before I go. This is before I sign off. Hey, this is super important. And what's coming? What does he say? Finally. So based on everything that's come before, what do you do? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That finally, that piece of uh, closing advice that he gives to us is to be strong in the Lord. If you ran the world uh, and you could have anyone do anything that you wanted, it would be so convenient if people weren't strong. If they were weak, if they just did what you wanted. That's not the type of King Jesus is. King Jesus wants his people strong. He's the type of leader who's generous with authority, with power, and he wants you to experience and have that power too. And the phrase, be strong, if you're the type of person that crosses out things in their Bible, cross out be strong and write be strengthened. It's actually a passive verb. Uh, The Holman Christian Standard Bible, I think, is one of the few Bible translations that nails it. Be strengthened in the Lord. Strengthened is passive. That's something that happens to you. I can throw the ball, or the ball can be thrown by me. Here's what he's saying. Be the ball. Be thrown. Be strengthened. Let something happen to you. The Christian life is not about, okay, i got to white-knuckle this. I gotta muster up the energy to get my behavior in line. Uh, this is a tough journey, all right? I've got my Patagonia, I've got my messenger bag, we're ready to go. That's not what Paul's trying to do. That's not the advice he's trying to solicit from you. He's saying this be strengthened. Let God strengthen you. How does God strengthen you? Well, he says it right here be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And the result of that is that we stand. There's two references there to two amazing things that God has done. There's a reference to the exodus in that passage, and there's also a reference to the resurrection. And what he's saying is this. How do you be strong? How do you let the Lord strengthen you? Look back. Look back at what he has done. See, look, like when you're suffering and when you're struggling, that's so disorienting. And like we can just get so stuck in our minds. And what Paul is saying is this, look away from yourself. If you're disoriented, if you're in that messy middle, the first thing you need to do is get your eyes off of you. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How does, how, wh- where do you get that, Craig? Where are you talking about the exodus and, uh, and, and the resurrection? Are you just making that up? Paul uses the word again and again here in this passage, stand. He uses it four times in the passage we just read, and it's a shift. So far, the book of Ephesians has been using the verb walk a lot. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Don't walk this way, walk that way. Now he's saying, stand. And there was a passage of scripture where people were in the messy middle themselves, or they were in a hopeless situation, and the, the, what they were commanded to do by God was just stand. That's after the Exodus. So the story of the Exodus, Israel's enslaved in Egypt. They're set free by God. They're sent out. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, oh, on second thought, let's bring them back here. So Pharaoh, was the, he had the world's biggest army at the time, the most advanced technology, and they go chasing after the people of Israel. 
people of Israel find themselves on the banks of the Red Sea. And so there's Red Sea behind them. They're in a valley with two mountains on each side of them and the world's most advanced army coming at them. Sometimes we make Bible characters sound so lame. Like, why couldn't they just trust God? You would be terrified in that situation. Like, we'd need to be handing out diapers. Here's what he says. So think about that. World's most powerful army, valleys, water. Hopeless situation. What are you doing, God? You rescued us just to bring us out to the desert to die. What are you doing? This is what Moses says to them. Fear not. Stand firm. Then what? See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Hebrew literally says this, Yahweh will fight your battles, just shut up. Here's the amazing things that happens. I don't know, I've never been in war. I don't know if you can tell from my demeanor, but I've never gone into battle, right? I fought a couple neighborhood kids as a kid, but that was like, that's the most violent my life has ever been. I can't imagine it's really great advice to give to a, an army of just, hey, stand. Okay? So like, hey, there, we're going to battle. We're going to take over that place over there. I just need you guys to stand here. Why, why, why can you give that advice? They're not the ones doing the fighting. Just like he said to Israel, Yahweh will fight your battles. He's trying to help them look outside of their minds and remember who God is. Yes, are you in a situation that's hard? Yes. Is the middle messy? Yes. Is life painful? Yes. Does it seem hopeless? Absolutely. Have people been there before? Yes. Has God been there before? Yes. What did he do? He took that hopeless situation and said, only I can fix this, and look what I did. It was an opportunity to trust him. All right, so this looks hopeless, and God has done this in the past. I trust you. That's not the only time, though, that God has taken a hopeless situation and used it for the salvation of his people, the resurrection. Think about how hopeless the death of Jesus must have been. He's come. The king is here. He's coming in in justice. He's riding into the city. A few days later, he's dead. That's hard. That's hopeless. And what did God do with that situation? Use it for your salvation and for mine. If you want to prepare for this messy middle, look back. Who's the God that's providing for you? He's a God who can rescue you in the midst of hopelessness. The darkness doesn't have the last word. Even if what you're walking through kills you. Because it killed him. And he came out of that grave. That's what Paul's actually trying to remind you of. Because that phrase, it says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Those three times he uses the word strong, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. It's a ton of power. Where else has he used that before in this book? 119. Let's start in 19. Let's keep going. Here's what it says. This is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. His prayer is that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You go out into this messy middle with resurrection power. You're not dead, you're alive. That's part of the reason it hurts so much. 
But the hope of the gospel is just what J.R.R. Tolkien said, that God will make all sad things come untrue. Your suffering, your pain will not be wasted. It will be undone. That's the resurrection. The hope of the Christian life is not that when you die, you leave this planet and you go sit on a cloud and play a harp and you leave all the pain behind. The hope of the Christian life is the resurrection. That just like Jesus walked out of the grave, he died and he beat death, you'll walk out of the grave. That suffering, that pain is real and will kill you. But you will be alive after that. As one theologian says, the Bible doesn't really talk a lot about life after death. It talks about life after life after death. Think about that one on the ride home. It's it's a mind bender. Here's what he's trying to say. Before you even take off on this journey, before I let you go, know what's ahead of you. It's hard, but look away from you. The more you look inside, the more confusing it is. It's a bottomless pit. You're going to find all kinds of reasons to why you're a failure and you're not going to make it. You're not going to finish well. That's why we look away. And what happens when we look away is we've seen that God has taken care of our biggest problem. He's taken care of the ultimate problem. Now we can trust him with these problems, real as they are, are much smaller. That's the hope. That's what he's trying to say. That's how you prepare. And then the next thing that he's trying to help you see, he's trying to see, hey, God took care of the ultimate problem so you can trust him. Now he's trying to say, God took care of your next problem, and that's the problem of sin. And so, I don't know your background in religion. When you talk about sin and fighting sin, that can be just really exhausting sounding. Okay, what it means to fight sin is you just need to look inwardly and you need to see all these ways that you're super sinful, and then you need to deal with that. Just like when we prepare for this journey, we don't get stuck in our heads. When we fight sin, we're not stuck in our heads either. It's not a call to look in. It's a call to look out. And he talks about the armor of God here. He's talking about the armor of God. And it's, this is what he's saying. This is what he's saying when he's talking about sin. Okay? He's saying this. You just got invited into a basketball pickup game. And there's 30 seconds left on the clock. And your team is up 100 to 2. And Jesus subs you in and says, okay, you got this. You can use all the tools I used. You got my power forward. You got my giant center. It's all yours. 30 seconds, 100 to 2. You got this. That's what the battle against sin has been called to. Will you continue to sin as a Christian? Absolutely. Will you, what, what happens now, though, is not that we have, we're freed from sin ultimately, but sin has lost its power. You don't have to sin. You have the power to say no. Do we always take that? No. Every single day. This is not a call to a sin-free life. This is a call to a life with power that starts to transform you. And so when he starts talking about the armor of God, like I said earlier, he's not just trying to sell merchandise to kids, okay? He's talking about one time when God put on all this armor. It's the armor of God. God put on all this armor, and he went to war for his people against some other gods. It's Isaiah 59. It's one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible, and most of the armor of God is mentioned here. The rest of it's earlier in Isaiah, but Paul didn't make up any of these references. They all come from Isaiah, And here's the situation and the setting in Isaiah. Israel is in the promised land, and they're supposed to be a light to the nations. But instead, they were worse than the nations. They sinned like crazy and became a place of injustice. And so it says this in Isaiah 59, 9. uh, Justice is far from us. 
This is Israel talking about righteousness doesn't overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. All they see is darkness. It's an unrighteous city. Skip ahead with me to verse 14. This is what happens. Justice literally says this. Justice has fallen over. Righteousness took off. Truth stumbles in the, in the public square. Uprightness can't even enter it. Truth is lacking, and this is messed up. He who departs from evil makes himself prey. So if you're involved in injustice, if you try to leave, we go after you. Earlier this week, I learned about this game uh, that people used to play in cities called Knockout. And it's not basketball. Uh, it's a game where it, people are walking, and then somebody just walking by, people just literally try to knock out people walking by. What in the world is that? Like, that's just so jacked up. That's what this was like. Just a city of injustice. And if you try to do what was righteous, we go after you too. And so what happens? Yahweh sees this in verse 15. And it was great evil in his eyes. Why? There was no justice. He saw that there was no man to fix it. And he wondered what there could be done to intercede. So what does he do? He sees the injustice and everybody's unjust. Sin has affected everybody. So what does he do? Then with his own right arm, he brings salvation. And righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. And a helmet of salvation was on his head. He clothed his, himself with, for vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal. Here's what's happening. Sin is a huge problem, and God takes on that problem. Your biggest problem this morning is not your circumstances. Your biggest problem this morning is not even your suffering, real as that is. Your biggest problem is sin. Your biggest problem is that you rebel against your maker. That's your biggest problem. And what Paul is saying in this passage is that there's actually, it's not just rebellion. It's not just that you love money more than you love God. It's not that you just love sleeping around more than you love God. There's spiritual warfare. He pulls back the curtain and shows that there is a spiritual rebellion that's also fueling your rebellion. Uh, Wait, let's just pause for a second, all right? So whenever you talk about spiritual warfare, there's two types of people in the room when you're talking about spiritual warfare. All right, there's the type of people who are very spiritual. They're super open to anything. Everything is spiritual. I was late because I got a flat tire because there was a demon in the tire, so we casted demons out of the tire. <laughs> then on the other side, you have people who everything is natural. There's a scientific explanation for everything. There's no heaven above, no hell below. What you see is what you get. Both of those worldviews are foreign to the New Testament. Both of those worldviews are foreign to the New Testament. I naturally, I mean, I grew up in secular New England. I naturally tend more to like, eh, this is it. What you see is what you get. And so for me, the struggle is like, okay, what does this mean now that there's a spiritual warfare? Like, what, am I supposed to just be scared all the time? Like, what's happening here? And so when the Bible, when Paul specifically starts talking about idolatry, he doesn't talk about it in a vacuum. He doesn't mention it very much. And when he talks about um, spiritual warfare, excuse me, he talks about it ex- really clearly in 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, he's talking to that church in Corinth, and they're sacrificing all these things to foreign idols. And Paul says this, like, hey, idolatry, it's not just like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You're actually sacrificing to demons. And so what's happening, it says here that he wants us to be on guard against the schemes of the devil. What are the schemes of the devil? Idolatry. 
What's going on in a battle for sin is a battle for who you are and what you love. And there's, there's a lot at stake here. So, like for example, uh, during the Vietnam War, we were losing. And so the United States government brought in the RAND Corporation to consult and do work to figure out what was going on. We didn't really understand this new type of war. So they brought in the RAND Corporation. And the RAND Corporation, one of the very first decisions that they made was to stop one of America's biggest, like, uh, our strategies. We were just dropping pamphlets on Vietnamese so- North Vietnamese soldiers saying, stop fighting. So they'd get this pamphlet, it'd fall from the sky, and they'd read it and it'd say, stop fighting. It didn't work. Do you know why it didn't work? And what Rand said is like, they don't make decisions. They're just soldiers. They're fighting, they're following orders. And so they get a contradicting order from the sky, they're not going to follow it. That's what's happening with spiritual warfare. Paul says this, the, the struggle before us is not against flesh and blood. Like, yes, people sin. Yes, people are responsible for their decisions. But they are really victims of the rebellion, the cosmic rebellion that's been going on since the Garden of Eden against God. And so the battle before us is, what he's trying to do is he's trying to protect us from this us versus them mentality. Oh, look at the sinners out there. Look at them. They're the problem. If they just got it together, I'm going to go to war with them. And I've got all these tools, too. I've got a sword of the word. I'm going to, we're going after you. What he's saying is this. He's saying it's not an us versus them. They're flesh, our flesh and blood. That phrase is actually backwards, it's, and it's only used one other time. It's to describe this kinship that we have with fellow human beings. He's trying to say this, like, your neighbor is in the image of God just like you. They're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. When we make war on sin, we're not making war on people. This is not Crusades 3.0. All right, what Paul's talking about here, spiritual warfare, is not even just fighting sin. It's not, it's not just like, hey, let's just find sin and just go crazy on it. What he's saying is this, put on what clothe yourself, surround yourself. Like a shirt, I'm wearing this Hawaiian shirt right now. I'm surrounded by a Hawaiian shirt. It's just all around me. He's saying, clothe yourself with what? The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. Fighting sin is more about, less about stop sinning and then pursuing something better. And what are we called to pursue here? Based on Paul's understanding, we're called to pursue both justice and grace. We're called to pursue justice and grace. In grace, Yahweh looked out and saw that there was sin everywhere. And we were enslaved and there was nothing we could do. And so he went out to rescue us. That's the grace. These things come in grace. And he says, hey, look, I won the battle. Here, have my tools. That's our God who's gone on before us. We believe him and we love what he loves. Psalm 89, 14 says this, that God's throne is established in justice. So the the call to fight sin is not a call to just like look inwardly, find all the sin you can, and just try to stop it. Just cut it out. But it's turning and pursuing something else. Pursuing righteousness. Pursuing justice. Pursuing salvation. Peace. Why? Because that's true beauty. Sin and idolatry, it leads to death. But now we, we can fight the schemes of the devil, and, it, and it's, a, it's a one battle. Like, we're not supposed to go attack, it's stand. We already won Connecticut. You just need to stand there. Yes, there's going to be some red coats that are going to come at you, but just hold your ground. That's what he's saying. Pursue justice and grace And that's how you navigate this broken life. It's not just like, hey, life is hard, life is messy. Just hold on. 
just wait till you die, then it's all over. We've been given a task in the middle. It's a task to pursue righteousness, to pursue justice, to pursue peace, and all of grace. And lastly, though, we haven't been left alone. Look with me at verse 18 and 20, where Paul starts talking about prayer. Pray with eager expectation is what he's saying, how you survive the middle. He says this, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. There's two topics that I can talk about right now that would just make everybody feel super guilty. One is evangelism, and the other is prayer. Start talking about how's your prayer life, and it's just like a cut to the heart. Like, oh, can we talk about something else? I I mean, it's fine. I, I pray, right? Prayer is so very hard. I mean, just a story from my own life. I mean, like, I think people, I, I don't want you to for a second think, like, oh, pastors are somehow, like, super saved, and they just navigate through life easily. I'm in here in the messy middle with you. When Amy and I first got married, uh, we, didn't have any, we didn't have any jobs, we had no idea what we were doing, and we were poor with a capital P. And so I finally got an interview to go to this place, and so we're, uh, it was for a teller job, and we're sitting in the parking lot, and I'm, like, running through all these interview things in my head, like, they're going to ask me, you know, what's my biggest weakness, and I'm going to figure out a way to say that that's, like, positive, but also humble, and, you know, I'm, like, running through. I'm in my head, and Amy says, like, hey, like, let's pray, and I didn't even skip a beat. I just said, like, oh, my gosh, it's not, like, some magic potion, babe, and, like, there's two decisions I've made in my marriage of if, oh, if I could take that back, I would have done that. One of them was getting this giant TV, and the other, (laughs) the other was that, Because now every time when I'm like, hey, we should pray about this, she just like lovingly and pokingly says like, well, it's not some kind of magic potion, you know. (laughs) Look, prayer is one of those things that it's just so hard to do. We're not really sure what we're doing. Does it matter? Why pray if God's got everything sorted out? Well, here's what, that's not a biblical understanding of prayer. God has so wired the world. I don't know how, I don't know why, but if you don't pray, Things don't happen, okay? Let me say that again because I don't want to be misunderstood. If you don't pray, things don't happen. So there are things that could have happened but didn't because you didn't pray. Here's what Jesus says. You have not because you asked not. God invites his people into part of the process. Yes, he is sovereign. Yes, he is in charge. He is large and in charge. But he has so chosen to do things where that he wants to invite us into the process where we pray for things and things happen. Part of the reason we don't pray is because we're not convinced it does anything. Paul asks them to pray, not just to say like, hey, would you guys pray for me? A couple thousand years from now, some people are going to read this and I want to tell them to pray. So will you pray for me? Paul's saying, like, I need you in this. You can participate with me in this process to proclaim the gospel boldly, so please do it, because I need you to do it. Prayer really does change things. It's not just character building for you, like, well, I'll pray, I'll ask for something, it won't happen, and that build character. No, prayer communicates hope. Prayer communicates hope. Look what he says. Pray in all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. Supplication is a word no one uses anymore, but it basically has this idea of just a dire need. So, for example, if my house was on fire, I would call the fire department because I have a dire need, and I really believe that they can answer my need. 
And so when we pray to God, we're saying, like, I have a need, and I trust that you're the one to answer it. He loves that. He is inviting you into that. He loves when you talk to him. He loves it. And, and, and here's another reason what the thing that prayer does. Prayer is all about presence. Prayer is how we experience and cultivate God's presence. Look what he says, praying at all times in the Spirit. The Spirit, God's Spirit, was the place where the temple, he, the Spirit dwelled in the temple, the place where heaven and earth met. And now we get to go in the Spirit, the place where heaven and earth meet and commune and fellowship with God. That's what prayer does. Prayer is experiencing God's presence and then waiting for Him to do something based on your interaction. So, how do we actually pray? I just want to give you a couple practical helps for how you pray. The first is believe God actually wants you to pray. God doesn't want you to just check things off of a list. He really wants you to experience the joy of His presence. He wants you there. Next, so you believe that God wants you to pray, then you set aside time to pray. And I mean that as literally as you can take that. Open your calendar, put an event in there, pray. And then don't just feel guilty and swipe it when it comes up. Really set aside time. Look, you're busy. I'm busy. I also have time to watch the shows I want to watch. I also have time to call the friends I want to call. We make time for what we prioritize. And I don't say this to make you feel guilty. This is a tweet that John Piper had a couple years ago, and it blew up. And so if you feel guilty, you blame him. He once said this, On the last day, social media and your internet history will be proof positive that you really did have time to pray. Make time to pray. You're not going to make it a priority if you, if you believe it's just this meaningless discipline. It's real. So you need to, before you, before you just weigh yourself with guilt, really just think about what prayer is. Believe that God wants to spend time with you. After that, anticipate what God will do. Prayer really does change things. When you pray, look for what he's doing. He is doing things. The problem is not like, oh man, I prayed, I asked for all these things, I didn't get any of them. The Bible also has something to say about that. It says you don't receive because you ask with wicked intentions. But like when you're praying, and as best you can, as clear conscience as you have, like, God, I'm praying for this. Now I'm watching. Just watch. See what he will do in response. He will do something. It may not be what you think, but he's doing things in response to your prayer. And write it down. Remember, oh, wow, here's an example of how he's been faithful. Pray not just to get through the, your spiritual disciplines and to feel godly, but pray with eager expectation. Paul then closes this book with two little nuggets that he wants to leave us with. He's wrapped up the, the heart of his letter, and he closes with a, just a, a, a salutation that really is super life-giving. Two extra little tools that you can have to navigate the messy middle. The first one is other people. He sends Tychicus, who? His dearly loved brother, why does he send him? Verse 22, so that he may encourage your hearts. Paul's not selfish with his relationships. The dude's in jail, and he had somebody with him who he dearly loves, and he sends him to other people. Why? 
that he would encourage their hearts. He's teaching this dramatic object lesson. He's saying this, you need others in your life to navigate through the messy middle. You cannot do this alone. There's two reasons you can't do this alone. We don't want, well, we don't see ourselves clearly at all. And so at times in your life, when you don't see yourself clearly, you're going to be excusing yourself and giving yourself a pass when you really shouldn't. There's going to be sin like anger or pride that you somehow excuse, like this isn't a big deal. And everybody else sees it, but you've not invited them into that space to let you know. That's one reason we need other people. We don't see ourselves clearly. The other reason is we don't see ourselves clearly, and it's on the other side of that. We may be harder on ourselves than the Bible is. Some of you have crazier standards than Scripture, and you are beating yourself up regularly, and you need other people to be like, yo, like, what are you doing? Like, you're actually not as big of a screw-up and a failure as you are. You're just being really hard on yourself. It's really hard to have that clarity by yourself. You might be able to do it, but don't risk it. Like, maybe one in a hundred people really can, like, nail being by themselves and, like, not having other people help them. It's probably not you, though. So just, like, just accept that and invite other people into your life. And the last way, the last nugget that Paul gives us to help us finish well, to help us navigate this messy middle, is Scripture. Look with me at verse 24. This is what he says. Grace be with all all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul opened the book. One, two. Grace to you. Hear the difference? He starts grace to you, and he finishes grace be with you. He's saying this as he opens. I want this book to be a way that you receive grace, that you experience God's great immeasurable love. And then he finishes the book by saying, I hope that grace stays with you. Scripture is a means of receiving grace. doesn't mean you're going to get saved because you read the Bible. It's not what he's saying. But he's saying experiencing God's favor, God's kindness to people who don't deserve it, that's the Bible. And it, when we trust Jesus, our circumstances don't change. Think about Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is all about your relationship to God's word. And here's what it says. You will be like a tree planted firmly by streams of water. So even when crazy windstorm comes, you can stand firm. It's grace to help you navigate this journey. We're done with the book of Ephesians. One of the things I just want to say, a closing thought, is this. As a church, we love and value Scripture. And I want to ask you, don't be stingy with that. Love Scripture. Like, don't feel bad. Like, you come to church to be fed. And that's never a bad thing. And so, like, as we, as we read this book, don't leave this here. This is not like, okay, I heard it. We're good to go. I got it. Nailed it. This is a process. This journey is a process, and it's a process we need to take together through wisdom from God's Word. So you can't do this alone. And if we're left alone with our words echoing in our heads... And not hearing from God and his word, that's just a very lonely place to be. So let's together walk toward Jesus being shaped by his word, making sense of the chaos that we're in with the story that he tells. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the promises that are in it.
God, I thank you for your son, that he has made this new humanity, and that you haven't just rescued us out of the world, but you've saved us and sent us back in the world. So God, I pray that we would be lights wherever we are, that we would communicate the hope that is within us. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.